This podcast is brought to you by Eventide, makers of the legendary Harmonizer. Their new H9000 is the culmination of almost 50 years of audio innovation. To learn more about their award-winning effects processors and plugins, visit eventideaudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Linda Perry had her first hit with What's Up in 1993 as lead singer and songwriter for Four Non Blondes. Since then, she's worked as a producer and songwriter for so many artists, helping shape the sounds of Pink, Christina Aguilera, Alicia Keys, Adele, and Dolly Parton. In 2015, Perry was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and in 2019, she received a historic Grammy nomination for Producer of the Year Non-Classical, one of only nine women to ever be nominated and the first female producer unattached to a production team. It's hard to summarize a career like hers, but she did it well with this. There's so many friggin' hats that I wear, and there's the producer, songwriter, you know, the entrepreneur, the, the manager, you know, the composer, and I'm the mom. And um, I'm also just, you know, a human being trying to figure out how best to be of service in this world. And here's my conversation with Linda Perry. It was a big honor, thanks to our mutual friend David Saw for hooking it up. What was your first instrument? My first instrument was the first four strings of a guitar bought in Tijuana nylon strings. Like the lower strings? No, it had six strings, but to me, I only could use the four. So I, you know, I would just do everything. And mind you, I would never use my left hand to hold chords, I would write songs just with the first four notes, the first four strings, E, A, D, and G, that's it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, B and E, I didn't find any use for those, so. Do you ever do that now in your writing or production, take off strings or? Yeah, I do that all the time. It's funny because all I do is weird stuff like that when I'm, like I was scoring this Sean Penn film called Citizen Penn. And um, it's all about when Sean and his organization, CORE, went to Haiti when they had that really big earthquake. And so basically they asked me to score the film. I was like, it's a documentary. And I was like, holy fuck, you know, because I've been wanting to score, you know. And um, I'm like, fuck yes. And so... (laughs) You know, it's in Haiti, so it's it should be Haitian music, Haitian players. You know, so I started writing, and I just kind of was demoing these songs because in the bigger picture, what was going to happen is I was going to demo the songs down, 
And then when they approved all the songs, then I would go get, you know, my Haitian singers, players, all that, you know, percussionists. So, you know, I would do stuff like take strings off. I'd use my tanner guitar, I'd use my baritone. I would tune my, my guitars in weird tuning. You know, I have no idea what those tunings were. It just sounded good to my ear. And so I would have to have my, in my guy, Luis, like, write this down. I have no idea what this is. And it'd be like E, E, A, G, uh, um, <laughs> D, F, you know, be weird tuning and then capoed and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, then COVID hit. And mm. so they needed the film done. And I was like, holy shit, but you guys, wait a minute. I was, and they proved everything, but everybody loved what I did for the score, they were like, well, you know, I'm like singing in the background, like, you know, you know, nothing, just, you know, hey, nah, you know, you know, stuff like that. And I'm playing percussions. I'm doing all this stuff. It was literally the funnest thing I've done since the <laughs> Kelly Osbourne, you know, record I did, you know, a while back ago. But, yeah. but it, it was but then now that I listen to him, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what's making it really cool. It's my interpretation of that style of music. And that's what I've always been known for is, you know, delivering my version of what a soul song is, my version of what a pop song is. This is my version yep. of what worldly, you know, Haitian music would sound like. And that score, I was tuning crazy but then it didn't sound crazy when it was all in perspective. It's funny. I think I heard you wrote Get the Party Started for Pink as you were figuring out an MPC. Is that right? So I moved to L.A. Um, really against my will. I made myself move here against my own will. And, um, and then by the time I got here to L.A., I called up my manager at the time, said, uh, moving on. So when I got here, I was like, well, what do I really want to do? Do I really want to go be an artist? I didn't really have luck digging that. I wasn't sure. I'm great. I think I'm, I'm actually a phenomenal performer. In fact, I feel the world is missing out on such greatness of a performer because I'm not out there performing. And and I don't mean You're that here. to sound egotistical. It's just the truth. There's such a lack of great performers out there when I look out in the world. I'm like, man, I kill it. If I were an artist, I'd be killing it right now. But um, But I just didn't want to go that route. So I was hanging out with somebody and I said, hey— what's that crazy bad sound that's all over the radio right now? And they're like, oh, it's a, oh yeah, I know exactly. It's a Triton keyboard. Um, people are using MPCs. I'm like, yeah. what's that? It's like, it's a, it's a drum program. Like you can, you can put drum sounds in it on, you know, uh, discs and, uh, right. You know, you can get different color, you know, different kicks, snares, and you just program your own beats. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And something else and D eighty eight, blah, blah, blah. And so I went and bought all that stuff. I put it all together and I just started, you know, boom, tap, boom, boom, tap, boom, 
boom, boom, da, da, boom, da, da, boom, you know, on the MPC. And I'm like, oh, that's fun. So, but, you know, I didn't have Pro Tools or any of that stuff. So I just let that beat play down for three and a half minutes or whatever. Yeah. Right. And then I'm like, I need a bass. I couldn't find a good bass sound. So I just grabbed my bass and boom, boom. And I'm just, you know, trying to figure out what all this shit does. So anyways, I create the whole track of Get the Party Started. And then I'm like, okay, well... I'm having so much fun. I just grab a harmonica microphone and I just instantly just started ad libbing, you know, I'm coming up, so you better get this part. And I just started thinking of every cliche thing I could say. And then that was the song. And then I started laughing, going, holy fuck, I just wrote a dance hit, you know, (laughs) as in, in a joke when I was just trying to figure out what this shit did. And then you just wrote a film score and you just wrote a whole record with Dolly Parton recreating her back catalog, which is that true that you, you made all those recordings on your own and then shared them with her? Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, that's my vibe. That's my style. I don't really wait for paperwork or people to say I can do something. If I feel it, I'm just going to go do it and they can decide whether they want to use it or not. Um, but, um, yeah, I got hired to write a song for um with Dolly Parton and I was like holy shit fuck yes give me the lowdown you know one of my idols you know just the best I mean give me a fucking break I've been calling her manager Danny like uh, I repeatedly like every month I made it a point to call him and you know hey it's just me Linda Perry checking in and he would laugh (laughs) you know and then to get this opportunity like she approved me, you know, and, you know, you can't go to, you can't do anything without Dolly's approval. So when, when you get a yes from Dolly Parton's team, that means she vetted it. She, she thought about it. She approved it, you know? Right. And, um, so that was pretty cool. And so then, um, I'm like going, okay, um, okay, you're doing a movie. Wait a minute. And I start talking to the music supervisor. I'm like, okay, what, what what are you guys going to do? Well, he's like, you know, I have this idea about m- maybe having the composer like kind of take some of her songs and tweak them so they kind of fit into the movie as a score. And I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to record the songs. What songs? And so we start putting the songs together. And I said, holy shit. And then I was being told that, you know, they really wanted her to do a duets album. I'm like, fuck a duets album with Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton doesn't need to do a duet album. But what she should do is on this movie, invite some people to sing with her. So so I started producing the old songs. And it's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them a... A Linda Perry twist. I, all I really did was clean house in the songs. There's so much production going on in those songs. You yeah. know, I just cleaned house. I just got rid of all the stuff that didn't need to be in there. And that made it sound cool and modern. And then I got somebody to that sounds like Dolly and had her sing. And then I mm-hmm. sent that to Dolly, and apparently she freaked out. And so by the time I got to Nashville... 
She was like, holy cow, oh my God, when I heard the songs, I was sitting, up and I started spinning in my chair. Oh my God, you made me love these songs. I had no idea I was going to like these songs again. I didn't know anybody could come in. Like, you know, when they said Linda Perry was going to produce these songs, I was like, okay, I'll go ahead. Yeah, I want her to do it. I thought you were going to, like, made them all pop and things, you know, but you didn't. Oh my God, Linda, you made me love these songs. Like, you really did something to them. Like, it didn't sound like it's modern but it is modern and I mean it was the cutest fucking thing and then the next day um, we wrote uh, next two days we wrote six songs from scratch and um, that's unbelievable and that was my and so I created all I said Dolly Parton needs to have an album I'm not fucking doing one song you kidding me we're doing six original new songs and we're gonna um, redo five of her songs so that I that was all me I paid for it I did it all and then I handed it over and they were like fuck yeah and then all of the songs made the movie then I helped score all the parts did you choose the duet partners too or was that sort of a joint effort? Yeah, the only people we chose that they chose was um, Miranda Lambert. Okay. Then I went after Sia, Macy Gray, Mavis Staples. I have an artist named Dorothy that um, oh, she's sang great. on it, and then I have an artist, Willa Amai, the sixteen-year-old that. Um, Dolly Parton freaked out. She's the one that's singing "Here You Come Again." What was it like? writing with Dolly because she doesn't do a lot of co-writes especially with women right I mean like I know she wrote a song with her aunt when she was younger but um other than that you might be the only female co-writer <laughs> I don't know yeah I am and Emma definitely the only you know she never even imagined being in a studio with a female producer and um you know we just hit it off I mean her and I couldn't be more opposite but we're very similar and um you know, I remember our first day, you know, when she was like, um, you know, I think we were starting on Dumb Blonde. We we're going to do her vocals and Miranda Lambert was coming in. And she's like, so we have, uh, you know, she's very soft spoken that at, at that particular moment, I think, because she was still testing me, you know. And she's <laughs> like, so, uh, you know, we're I guess we're going to be in the studio tomorrow. I mean, and you're coming to my uh my uh, writing room and we're going to uh you know you know do something what what were you plan on doing and i'm like oh i plan on we need six songs and she like literally choked she's like what she's like oh my god she's like hold on there she's like you count the chicken before the eggs you know and then like whatever and you use one of her cheesy phrases mm -hmm. and um but they all make sense when it comes out of her mouth but I was like oh yeah no it's gonna happen she's like well let's just try one I'm like yeah and then we're gonna go to two three four five and six you know and she just laughed and then so my first day with her in the her writing cabana she was like, we were sitting there and we just, we came up with three songs one day, three songs the next day. So six songs in two days. And um, so we wow. were taking a break after the third song and she was looking at me and she was like, you're weird. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, you, I don't know how to take that quite yet. And I'm like, excuse me. She's like, you're weird. You're a weird girl. I like weird. You know, I mean that in a good way, but you are weird. 
<laughs> and then we just became very close very quickly. And literally, Dolly Parton is one of the best humans on this planet, I, for sure. I agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's Dawn, a fairy godmother to yeah, us all. But Dawn, she's like operating on a frequency that, you know, you know, very little people reach. I mean, this woman is on a whole other game plan. Just so kind and generous and constantly lifting people up. You know, whether you're the person that brought her coffee or the president of a label, it, it doesn't matter to her. She's just like, it's so incredible to people and it's really inspiring and I learned a lot being with her that's great do you think she learned anything from you um I don't know I mean I I think you know she saw how funny I was and I was very light about things and you know she would say we're very similar she felt like she met her creative soulmate you know and you know but a compliment but the 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 second day I was there her manager. So yeah, actually, I guess I did because her manager the second day came to me. He's like, you're a keeper. And I'm all (laughs) what? He's like, I don't know what you did, but I haven't seen Dolly this inspired in 16 years. You know, he's (laughs) like, but you're not going anywhere. You are a keeper. And I guess, you know, she had not been really that inspired and had been doing anything. And then as soon as she- Or challenged. Yeah. As soon as she met me, he said that she just- you know, she got super inspired and just kicked in, and she hasn't stopped since then. That's great. When you start working with a new artist, are there rules on your first meeting, or? The only thing I ask for is for you to be open, honest, and be prepared to abandon ego hmm. and whatever bullshit you carry. And, you know, I think it's really important. Like, I have to meet the person first. I can't just agree to write with somebody. I have to meet them. I have to see if there's some kind of connection. Whether, even if we don't like each other, creative doesn't need to, you don't need to like the person you're being creative with. You know, we all know that. You know, but I just need to know there's some kind of creative spark and, um, and in, in inspiration there somehow. And then when we go to the next level and it's like, okay, great. Then it's a matter of, I don't want to really work. I don't like it when people come with ideas in a writing session. I don't like when they come up with ideas prior to the writing session and then come with these ideas to me. I think, write that, you came up with that on your own, finish it on your own. What we're going to do is, you and I have never met, we've never experienced our creative together. I don't want to stagnate that by putting in, you know, a safety net. Like, let's explore what we can do together before we go to your go-to safety net. Here's the deal. Most people show up at a, a, a session and they sit around for hours and nobody comes up with an idea. So I get that you have to be prepared, but with Linda Perry, that just doesn't happen. You know, I do two songs sometimes. Sometimes I've done three songs in a day with somebody, 
you know, and if we're not creative um, and it's not happening within an hour, I'm like, I don't think we're, we're good together. You know, it's like, it's not right. happening today. And then it's just date like. Date over. Da- yeah, exactly. <laughs> date is over. You know, I don't feel it. You're not feeling it. It was really nice to meet you. I think you're amazing, but I don't think it's going to happen. You know, um, so my rule really is I just need you to show up open and vulnerable and be prepared to to go deep or to do something different and left field because I would probably be a richer person and more successful if I focused on hits and what everybody else is doing. But unfortunately, I just don't move and operate that way. I have to, I, I don't know, I just have to make things fucking harder, you know, and, and I just, I want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not, the outcome to me, we, we succeed we're, we're, we already succeeded when you write a song. That's a success. Right. Writing a fucking song is a success. Now, whether that song is a hit or not, that's beyond my power because I'm telling you, I know a lot of songs that should not have been hits, but a lot of money made it a hit. And I know right. songs that should have been a hit, but people didn't believe in it, and so they didn't put any money towards it, and it wasn't a hit. So a hit is where the money goes, you know? Or a hit, you just know. What's up is a hit. Imagine is a hit. Crazy was a hit. Yeah. You know, you know, you 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 know those songs, but there's a lot of songs that just shouldn't have been hits. But you know, so I don't focus on that. It, it, I'm not good at copying. In fact, anytime I try to even be inspired by what other people are doing, it fucks me up. Right. So I just can't do it. Well, just do your own thing. Do your own vision. That's what I do. And, you know, and either I hit or I don't, you know, but I certainly write great songs, but not every single song is a hit. And I'm okay with that. Well, you mentioned What's Up. That was my first introduction to your songwriting and your singing. And I know that there's a story there. It's well documented, but was that your first experience in a recording studio? Or had you recorded prior to that? When Four Non Blondes, I, I had no experience whatsoever. I was a solo artist in San Francisco that was kind of climbing my way up. Um, and um, then, you know, I joined this band because it seemed fun. And then, um, you know, I wrote that song. Then we went into a studio for like a day and recorded, I think, eight songs and just did it really fast um, with this woman, um, Lydia Hawley. She was really great, great um, support, you know, for Four Non Blondes. And then, um, oddly, I don't even think the tape even made it out anywhere. We just started getting recognition in San Francisco, and labels started finding us, and then we signed with Interscope Records, and... yeah. You know, the the song I, I wrote was just based out of frustration of what was going on in the world. You know, I had no money. You know, um, it's just everything seemed hard and desperate and challenging. And, you know, and I just wrote this song that seemed to fit the mood 
not only for myself, but for the world. You know, you don't know that that's going to happen. You just write a song. You don't know that, you know, the song is going to go blow up worldwide and it's going to be, you know, some kid in Malaysia is going to be blaring it out his window. You know, so it, it, it was just an instant song and that song is why we got signed. And then um, when we were recording it, the producer at the time just had no sense of what the song was. He just didn't understand the simplicity, the power of it. He was coming from ego. He wanted to produce the song. You know, he wanted to mm-hmm. make it fancy. He wanted to put his leg up and piss on it, you know, and, you know, that that basically is what he wanted to do. And I was not having that. And I went to the label and said, this song sucks. This is not the song I wrote. They didn't support me. They said it sounded fine. I said it did not. And so I grabbed the band during a break and we went to uh, the plant in Sausalito and we had one reel of tape and they let us go in there. And um, I didn't have any experience except for the experience of being in the studio with David and realizing David Tickle. David Tickle. I, I realized what I didn't like. I didn't like any of the sounds that he was getting. I didn't like my vocal tone. There was nothing about that album that I sonically related to, you know, but I was outvoted all the time. And so I just didn't want to make ripples. So I just went along with it. Um, and then when we were in the plant recording this song, I just started moving things around. Um, the engineer there helped me, you know, a lot. And, and I just would tell him, and if I, if he didn't get it, I would just move the microphone around and, and then I go, yes, that's it. That's the sound. And, and I basically just did that with everything, you know, and then we got the tempo, we got the recording of it, the bass of it done. I added, I redid my acoustic. I was in the middle of vocals when, um, David Tickle showed up. I just laid down three vocals. I was annoyed that he showed up. We were already done with the friggin' song. Um, mm-hmm. We comped the vocal. We mixed it that night, and it made mastering the next day. And that is the version that blew up all over the world. That's so great. And you never got a producer credit for that. Is that right? They said, can't your credit be that you saved the song? <laughs> That's tragic. But it's all right. I mean, yeah, again, I, mean, I did. I did save the song. and You did. And I've told the story enough that people know that David Tickle did not produce that song. It was me. And, you know, I don't need, um, I, need I don't need, uh, this is one of the things I really appreciate about myself is I, I have a lot of gold records. I have a lot of trophies. I have a lot of awards. I have a lot of things. But you know what you don't see? You don't see a lot of trophies. You don't see my awards. You don't see any records in my studio, in my house. You don't see them anywhere because they're nowhere to be found because I've given them out to everybody, my family, or they're in storage. Like, I don't need that. Well, you have a hit song that you produced and, and shepherded into the world. So yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm good that way. And I, I'm just like, you know, I know what I do. So... So how did you go from that? Your next step was your first solo album, In Flight, and you worked with Bill Bottrell, right? Yeah. What was that? How was that? Because you guys co-wrote a few songs on that together, right? 
Yeah, that was a great experience because that was just, at first I didn't want to work with Bill, you know, um, because I didn't, I didn't really get the style. I didn't feel like it was really me. And, um, but Hmm. then we met and I was like, okay, I dig this guy. And it was a completely different experience. Like I didn't want to, like the four non blondes, like as much fun as it was, I just, as an artist, I could not relate to me, her. I call her her. I don't even, it's hard to even say that is me in that because she just sang at 11 the whole fucking time. And it's so annoying. That record, it's annoying because of me, you know, and I just had no understanding of what my voice could do. I just only knew how to scream and be loud, you know, and when I was doing the in-flight record, I had just, I wrote these songs during the second Four Non Blonde record that they denied they didn't want them because they sounded too dark and and that was basically an invitation to my exit and I'm like okay great I'm out of here so I sat down on a chair with a bottle of wine a glass an ashtray pack of cigarettes and I sat on that chair with my guitar a microphone in my face and that's how I recorded the album And it had so much depth. It had, I mean, my voice in it is just beautiful to me. Like the lows, like when I would go down to like a song like Success, you know, um, or Life in a Bottle, like that was me telling a story about a person that was extremely unhappy. And I just could not find my birds. I could not find my, my flock. And I was an alcoholic and, um, you know, just trying to figure out who I was in the creative. And so I was just sitting there telling my story and um, it got captured on a record. And it was it is one of the most beautiful things that I've created. And Bill Betrell was a wonderful mentor incredible, you know, person to work with. And he educated me and taught me so much. And I learned so much about production and engineering. I learned everything from him by watching him and, and just really understanding what sound, how that can add to your tone and to who you are. And that's when it all clicked in and I was severely depressed when the label shelved the record because I thought it was such a beautiful record. But yeah, it wasn't What's Up. It wasn't Four Non Blondes. And it was very different than what was out in the world. Do you still communicate with him? Are you guys still in touch? Bill is a nut, you know, like, <laughs> he, he, you know, he can, he's a total asshole. You know, he's the kind of guy that... I mean, I love him. I respect him. 
I would welcome him anytime, but he's a dick. Hmm. You know, he's a dick. He's an asshole. He's a bitter guy. And, but that's also what makes him great. He's, to me, one of the best producers out there still, um, incredibly creative. I think he's a genius, but he's such a dickhead that he gets in the way of his own success. Well, he taught you, or he maybe inspired a love of recording in you. Yeah, but he would say I'm horrible. You know what I mean? He's such a pompous little butt fuck. You know, like he <laughs> he would literally think what I'm doing is lying, you know, because he's the best at everything. But again, mind you, I say this all tongue in cheek because I would say this to his face. Um, right. So I, you print away, you know, but because he'll laugh <laughs> about it. But I do love him. I call I called him the professor, you know, and I was his student. Well, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. And he taught me a lot, but I did he encourage you to buy your own gear and set up your own studio? Yeah, after I mean, that, he 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 didn't encourage me to do that. He just because I asked so many questions, like, "What is that? What did you just do? What's that? What's that?" And then finally, one day it was funny. He just grabbed me by the shoulders and put me in front of the board and sat me down in the chair, like literally threw me in the chair, but with my shoulders, and said, "These are EQs. These are the mic pre's. If you know." this, this is lows, this is highs, this is mids, you know, this is panning, this is the effect sends, blah, 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 this is your levels, you know, this is phase. If you know one, you know them all. You know, over here is mm-hmm. outboard gear. This is compressor. This is EQs, blah, 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 you know. And and I, and I then that's how he taught me. And I just would watch and then I would get on the board sometimes and do things. And, and then I would look at him for acceptance and he would say, why are you looking at me? And I'm like, am I doing it right? He's like, does it sound right to your ears? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, then that's right. He's like, Linda, you'll have to learn. Don't look at the meters. Don't look at me. Don't watch anybody. If it sounds right to you, that's what's going to make you a unique person. It's like, I could tell you every single thing I do. I can tell you the drum set I used, at what time I used it, the temperature in the room, what drummer, what 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 sticks. You know, I could tell you the, how I asked him to play, whether it was heavy, light, or whatever. And um, exactly the microphones, the tuning, everything. And you'll never, ever mimic what I did. And I'm like, why? He's like, because you don't have my ears. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, you'll never be able to copy what I do because you don't have my ears. You don't hear it like I do. Like, I'm never going to be able to copy what you do. You know, and he's like, and that's what will make you a unique producer. The moment you start copying people, then you're done. And I've never done that. Like, I literally have no idea what I'm doing in here, but I know everything, but I know nothing. <laughs> yep. That said, did he recommend any gear? I mean, did, did you actually set up your own no, he studio didn't. after that? Or, yeah. Because or, so I know I was... you started producing after that, right? Didn't you do a Stone Fox record mm-hmm. like the next year? So after I did that record... I just started, you know, putting together a studio because I had this huge warehouse. And so I just started buying gear. And honestly, I bought gear that looked good. You know, I didn't know what they were. And it just, you know. (laughs) What did you buy? Do you remember? Yeah, I can tell you amazing things that I bought. Um, So I came across this 
beautiful black piece of gear, and it had these big knobs, and it was gorgeous. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? I want it. And the guy would be like, um, and it was, mind you, the price was ridiculously low. Anyways, I bought two of those because I just loved them so much. And those ended up being 670 Fairchilds. Had no idea until later like what, what they actually were. I bought a bunch of Poltex. Again, I just loved ha- the blue and the big knobs. If it had mm-hmm. big knobs, I wanted it. <laughs> you know? Um, right. And I bought a bunch of Neves and, you know... Um, you know, this. I bought this NTI that was really, you know, it just, I just liked the way it looked because it was all colorful knobs and it said NTI. And I'm like, all right, that looks cool. I'm going to buy that too. And literally, <laughs> Mike, I did the same thing with microphones, you know, like big microphones. It's this, this is tube. Okay. So I bought a U47, U87. And then I started to understand a little bit more. And then I'm like, oh, okay, this is all vintage gear. And I started asking questions. And then then the more I asked questions, then that started, you know, gearing me towards what I would buy, you know, and then, right. but honestly, I bought so much cool gear, fucking had no idea that my 670 that I bought for $7,000 at the time, I mean, it's, I think it's worth $70,000 now, you know, and, um, I just, yeah, I did the same thing with instruments. I would court instruments too, and not knowing that, you know, that they were valuable. I just have expensive taste, I guess. And, um, but, and then I just figured it out, you know, so I literally bought a bunch of gear and then I put it all together myself, you know, and it took a long time, but that's the only way I can learn. Like I cannot read instructions. I, my brain, I have a, uh, some kind of disorder. I, I mean, I, that's why I didn't, I failed school. And I only made it to eighth grade. It was so frustrating. It's painful, but I can't sit there and read like the other day. It's, it's embarrassing. Like my brother bought me this steamer a mop steamer right (laughs) and something fucking so simple but I couldn't figure I was so I was like reading the instructions because I could see it needed certain stuff and I got so frustrated because I couldn't put it together a fucking stupid mop and then I threw away the instructions and I looked at it and then I just started putting it together I can only do it that way if I try to read instructions my brain gets so tired and backwards it all turns backwards and it all gets really fucked up in my brain so I literally for months it took me and if someone teaches me I can't learn I'm thinking of your experience in the studio with Bill like you had to ask the questions I had to ask certain things that I knew, and then if he showed me and pointed, but if he started talking too much, I, it, it just goes out. That's how I learned how to be an engineer. Actually, I'm a great engineer. I'm a better engineer than I am a producer. Like, I, I get cool sounds. I get great drum sounds. I get unique sounds, like sounds that people don't get. Like, I get those sounds. Like, I'm that girl. If you want a cool-sounding record, I'm that person. If you want Katy Perry or something polished, I'm definitely not that person to call. Right. Are you messing with sounds on the way in? I mean, I know you've mentioned, like, harmonica mics, and I I think I heard that—which record was it? 
maybe a Gwen Stefani record where you put up eight different mic sounds for her to play with in the studio. Oh, um, yeah. Well, because I think those things are, you know, it's interesting. Like, yeah, there was this song, What You Waiting For, that, you know, we agreed we thought they were all different characters. So to me, different characters mean different microphones. So I just, I set up six different microphones. I put the name on them, you know, SM7, you know, U47, you know, 67, whatever. And um, I put the name on it for her so she knew. And when we wrote the lyrics down, I put the name of the microphone on the lyrics. So that's the microphone she would go to. So they, they stayed very close to each other. So when she would go and I just put them all on record and she sang live that way. So it would be like, like a neck of pillow in the new microphone, a scary situation, da, 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 da. take a chance, you stupid hoe, oh, 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 you know, like, so she would move around. I mean, I wish I'm, I'm streaming and, and, and Instagram and all that stuff was happening then because it was so incredibly fun to watch her do that. It was amazing. And so I recorded her vocal like that and she had fun. And then, but what it did, it mentally prepared her to be different characters. So she knew going in, when she went to that microphone, she had to play a different character. So that's why I did it, because if you're on the same microphone, it's hard to be the same, uh, different characters. But it's also to capture a different character when you're using the same chain, you know? So so that was super fun to do it like that. Um, Yeah. Do you have a preferred vocal chain? Because you get such incredible, vulnerable performances out of singers and I, I know there's the story of Christina Aguilera singing Beautiful for the first time. And how do you capture that going in? Like, how do you know what chain to use if she's going to get the perfect take the first time? I don't. You know, th- listen, th- uh, uh, the vocal chain is not the important part. What's important is the emotion. Every day is so wonderful and suddenly to breathe Now and then I get insecure from all the pain I'm so ashamed I am beautiful no matter what they say Words can't you, can, you can be singing in garage band and grab a great vocal because the emotion is great. If you don't get an emotional vocal, the vocal sounds like crap. If you, if you, you can be in garage band, you can be in anything. You can be in a Tascam 8, you know, and capture incredible stuff if you are capturing a vibe, you know. And that is what's important. That's the part that people are missing right now. They don't realize it's not the fucking gear. It's not Pro Tools versus tape. It's the song. It's the performance. It's the artist's relationship with the producer. And if the artist feels, you know, safe to be that vulnerable, are you guys even recording a fucking good song? You know, and I think those are the things that are important. Everybody else gets bogged down 
down with, oh, I'm going to use this and I'm going to use that. And yeah, look at this new thing that I got. And this is, here's this new trick. And I'm going to, you know, fucking splice my base three times and, you know, flip, you know, the third, I'm going to take the sub and flip it backwards. And, and, you know, they're doing all this production, but there's no song yet, you know? So, um, you know, my, my go-to chain to me for, to just have up isn't necessarily going to be the chain that I use for that artist. Because again, different voices need different vocal chains. So if I have like Christina, she sounds great on a U47 through a Neve 1073 and an LA2A. Like that's a great chain for her. But Alicia Keys sounds better on a 251 going through an API and a distressor or 1176. You know, um, my Willa Amai, she sounds awesome with an 87, 1073 in the LA-2A. And then, you know, I might put a distressor on the back end. I love SM7s through a distressor and a 1073. Fucking love that sound. (laughs) I also love it through 1176 as well. But, you know, SM7, to me, if you don't have a lot of money... That is the microphone to buy because that's a drum microphone. It's a guitar microphone. It's a, um, a vocal microphone. It's a lot of microphone. It, it can do everything. You can put it on piano. You can put it on everything. It's an incredible microphone. I think it's over 400 bucks, but it is worth it because it'll be the only microphone you really need. You know, if you are working on a budget, buy a fucking SM7. That's it. <laughs> Don't even go anywhere else, you know? Yeah. And if you can get a distressor, I believe that is an incredible compressor. Again, for everything, drums, guitars, vocals, to fuck shit up. It's a great, it's a great compressor to fuck things up, you know? Um, Yeah. But anyway, so I'll just put up several, you know, I'll put up four choices and then I'll have them sing along to the track. I'll record it. Okay, here's that. Go to the SM7, go to the 251, go to the 87, go to the U47. Okay, I'll record them singing the very first and then I just listen. Listen back and I, you know, and I'll go between microphones and I close my eyes. I don't even look. I ask my assistant, just play it back to me. Don't say what it is. And I usually just close my eyes and I listen and I listen to the microphone that is telling me the story, you know, that I believe the story. And then I go, that's the one. And then it's like, oh, shit, it was the SM7, you know, or it was, I didn't think an 87 would sound good on you. Or or it's neither. I still don't believe it. So I'm like, then I go on the hunt even more. <laughs> like, I hunt. I don't, I never use Pro Tools to manipulate. I always get the sound that I want to hear first then after the fact, I will go and, you know, tweak a little bit if I need to. But I do all the tweaking on the microphone, um, moving microphones around, tuning drums, changing guitars, changing amps, changing vocal mics. Like, I just try to get the sound that I want and commit to it. So, for instance... If I want the bass to have distortion and I'm like going, oh, you know, 
Let's okay. So here we go. On the, I'm gonna get the sub. I'm gonna keep that guy fat and low. Put that through a distressor, okay. And then you know I want my 414 to be the the main tone. So that's gonna be my clean tone. And then you know what? Let's put up uh, an RE20, and I want that to be the fuzz. Then what I'll do is I'll crank the the pre on there. I'll I'll crank it and then I will EQ it, you know, to get all the crack out, but I'll fucking fuzz the shit out of that on the, the mic pre, you know, and yeah. that's how I'll do it. Don't get me wrong. There's really great plugins and, or I'll just go, okay, after the fact, I'm going to put a plug in on that and, and that's what I'll do, you know, but I try not to rely on plugins and I, I want to believe that this is it. This is all I got. We're going live, man. And this is the sound. So I record everything as if it's going live. This is all we got. And then it's a bonus after that. Do you put together bands for artists or do you have like a group of musicians that you always use? You know, in the early days with Pink, I helped put that band together. I helped put Christina's band together. Um, Yeah, I do. I, I think it's actually, you know, for me... When you're a producer, and this is this is where probably, I mean, I don't know if I stand in or stand out, but I, I can't just stop with the production and the studio or the album. Like I have to follow follow it out of the studio. So I get very involved with the live shows, making sure you know everybody's playing the songs right, capturing the vibe. All that is very important, you know, but not many people want that anymore, you know. Is there one thing you know now that you wish you would have known when you were getting started as a producer? Um, you know, I'm just, I'm really one of those people that have convinced myself that I have no regrets and, you know, that I don't want to operate that way. I don't even want my my brain or my heart to even know that's an option to be able to look back or look at myself today and look at how me, Linda, today could have affected Linda yesterday, I think it would be too painful. And I think that's why I pretend like I have no regrets and regrets don't mean anything. I, th- I feel that it's just too painful to look back at the mistakes that I've made that I know now, you know, I can see now. So it's not anything I want to, and mind you, as I'm saying this, it's the very first time this is actually coming out of my mouth and, and that's (laughs) how real I'll, I'll be. I'm very transparent. And for some reason that question is sparking a different answer that I've never given before. And it's too painful to think of things like that for me. Well, thank you for your honesty and transparency. It's been an honor talking to you today. Thank you, Linda Perry. For more on Linda and her studio and her many projects in the works, check out lindaperrystudio.com. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, 